Hello, I'm your host, Inman Narrowin, and this is Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, a monthly podcast of anarchic literature, where we take our monthly feature and turn it into an audio feature and interview the author. You can get a copy of the monthly zine by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness, or you can read along for free at tangledwilderness.org. This month we have St. Lucy, an anti-hagiography by one of my best friends, Renarai. I'm so excited for y'all to hear this piece and to hear our interview about the piece. We talk about folklore, history, and why saints are kind of cool. The word of the month is about the unsurprising synchronicity of names. And as always, our feature is read by the wonderful Bee Flowers. Enjoy. St. Lucy, an Anti-Hagiography, by Ren Rye, narrated by Bee Flowers and published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. At the end of one of the tunnels in the catacombs of St. Lucy is an alcove with a stone bench. I noticed it the moment we stepped underground, and it distracted me as the guide described the catacombs' burial chambers and its origins as an ancient Greek aqueduct system. The alcove seemed so clearly to be the destination point in the version of St. Lucy's story I know best, the one where she walked through the damp, protective dark to reach a grotto where her persecuted brethren hid, wearing a crown of candles on her head to light the way and carrying a bundle stuffed with bread and wine in her arms. Lucy not as a martyr or saint, but as a determined teenage girl, navigating passageways beneath the Roman-occupied Sicilian city of Syracuse to sustain fellow believers in an imperfect but incendiary new faith. In 380 CE, 76 years after Lucy was executed by the state, Rome declared Christianity its official religion and jump-started the church's long and ongoing history as a tool of control, violence, and colonization. But in the early 4th century CE, the religion was a fringe offshoot of Judaism that believed, as Jamie McKay writes in The Invention of Sicily, in, quote, an imminent resurrection of the dead and the overturning of the established order, end quote. Although exactly how Christianity arrived in Sicily is contested, it may have been through the Apostle Paul of Tarsus while others link it to Jewish refugees fleeing anti-Roman revolts in the eastern Mediterranean, it began to attract converts in the island's urban centers where, as across the rest of the empire, starvation and pestilence were common, free expression was policed, and the population was surveilled. The empire pushed back on this growing sect, arresting Christians and executing those who refused to recant and worship the Roman gods. The nascent religion had multiple variations, from Gnosticism, which was relatively feminist with strong pagan elements, to the militaristic version later adopted by Rome, and developed a local character in many of the places where it took root. Sicilian Christians, perhaps driven by the persecutions on their island, had a distinct reverence for martyrdom. An earlier Sicilian martyr, St. Agatha, 
played a pivotal role in Lucy's life and later hagiography. Born to a wealthy family, Lucy, who was raised by her mother Eutychia after her father's death, converted to Christianity at a young age and, soon after, visited Agatha's shrine in nearby Catania to ask the saint to heal her mother from a bleeding disorder. Her supplications were successful, and, in gratitude, Eutychia permitted Lucy to give away their possessions. This was an act of redistribution that went against Roman views on squandering wealth and, as it was carried out by two women, the patriarchal social order. It meant not just selling her jewelry to buy provisions for hungry neighbors, but also, according to some versions of Lucy's story, risking, and ultimately giving, her life to personally resupply the religious rebels hiding out in the catacombs. This is the catacomb where the saint was buried, not necessarily the one she would have visited, the guide tells me when I ask about Lucy's midnight expeditions, then gently reminds me that the tour focuses on archaeological history, not religious lore. That bench, I remember her adding, wasn't built until the 20th century, when the catacombs were used as a bomb shelter during World War II. My partner and I are in southern Italy to visit the places where some of my birth father's ancestors came from, but we're in Syracuse specifically for Lucy. I was raised Catholic, and despite having left the church years ago and having an active disinterest in the institutional aspects of the religion, I'm still drawn to the elements of folk Catholicism through which pre-Christian and nature-centered beliefs have been smuggled and reimagined over the centuries. This vernacular spirituality, historically carried on by those on the peripheries of power, often includes devotions to the Madonna and saints, among whom St. Lucy is a personal favorite. Lucy is also revered in Scandinavia, and I tell people that I grew up celebrating her feast day because my mother is Swedish-American. I'm not. I'm adopted. But it's an oversimplification— my mom wasn't raised with the holiday, but after I read about it in an American Girl novel, I insisted we observe it, and she got on board. For all of elementary school, I'd wake up early in the morning of December 13th and, following the Scandinavian custom, put on a white dress with a red sash. At first, I wore tinsel in my always tangled dark hair. But, after my mom found a Lucia Crona at a store while visiting relatives in the Midwest, I twisted on the battery-operated candles attached to the green plastic wreath before placing it on my head. Swedish Lucias carry a tray with coffee and sun-colored saffron buns called Lucicater as an homage to the saint's food redistribution, but since my parents didn't drink coffee and declared making the buns too much work, I filled up my wooden tray with water and toast instead. I delivered the food to my parents in bed while singing the lyrics of Santa Lucia and garbled Swedish to the tune of Santa Lucia, a Neapolitan folk song. I didn't know this then, but I was reenacting an age-old story about light in midwinter grafted onto a Christian saint. December 13th was the solstice on the Julian calendar, and, in Scandinavia, the longest night of the year was when witches were out in full force. Among those was the Lucy, who, with her entourage of demons called Lucifreda, 
roamed the skies, snatching away naughty children and heedless adults. To appease Lucy, it was customary to stay inside and up all night, feasting and socializing in a house brightly lit with candles. The loose celebration survived in parts of Sweden through the 1800s, and, as Lovisa Senby Posse writes, quote, was mainly celebrated by men or women dressing up in white with a crown of flowers, holding candlesticks, and walking around the farm with food while singing in the morning, end quote. Later that same century, it spread across the country as part of a wave of renewed interest in folk customs. Over 800 years of Christianity, the celebration was syncretized to the story of St. Lucy. The saint's onomastic similarity to Luce and the date of her feast paired perfectly with the idea that she was part of the solstice, a promise of the returning sun in the long but necessary winter but she was likewise considered the patron saint of those in need. And so the food carried in rural loose celebrations became symbolic of that which Lucy carried through the catacombs. We stopped celebrating St. Lucy's Day when I was in middle school, after Catholicism's entrenched patriarchy got to me so much that I became indignantly agnostic and was more interested in pop punk and beat literature than an ancient festival of light anyway. But Lucy's lesson around the primacy of sharing food as a radical act never left me. My interest in anarchism was catalyzed by volunteering with Food Not Bombs in the mid-aughts and, even after I left home to dive into radical projects elsewhere, food always seemed to be a part of it, from cooking breakfast for a direct action campaign against mountaintop removal, to interviewing friends and comrades who organized disaster relief kitchens. It wasn't until years later, while staying with a friend in rural Arizona, that my interest in St. Lucy was reignited. My host had also been raised Catholic, and we were both avowedly against the church while retaining an affinity for the syncretic religious traditions of women and queers. We talked about our favorite saints, mostly Joan of Arc and Mary Magdalene, often. As I fell asleep on the couch in my friend's living room one night, watching the flickering of the wood stove. Something about those flames illuminating the dim quiet reminded me of Lucy, and I decided to revisit her story. Pulling up Wikipedia on my phone, I was surprised to find that she wasn't, as I always presumed, from Scandinavia. She was Sicilian. It's in the Swedish tradition, not the Italian one, where the story that inspired me as a child— Lucy bringing food to persecuted early Christians, a crown of candles on her head, is prominent. By contrast, what I mostly encountered during my short touristic time in Syracuse was a fascination with her death. While this squares with Sicilian Catholicism's intense focus on martyrdom, it's also the least interesting part of Lucy's story. The broad strokes of her execution are almost identical to those of other young female martyrs from the Roman Empire, and the fixation on it is emblematic of a church that, time and again, values female saints based on their often cruel deaths instead of the lives they lived. Here's the abbreviated version. Lucy rebuked a powerful suitor, he outed her to the authorities as a Christian, and when she refused to swear allegiance to the Roman pantheon, she was tortured and killed. 
Caravaggio's Burial of St. Lucy shows the saint's chiaroscuro corpse surrounded by mourners, their waxen faces both plaintive and distraught, as Rome-employed gravediggers pierce shovels into the subterranean earth. Commissioned by Syracusan authorities in 1608 as part of an effort to revitalize the saint's cult, the painting currently hangs above the altar of the Basilica Santa Lucia al Sepolcro. Lucy was buried in the nearby catacombs that bear her name, but after her body was stolen in the early Middle Ages, it bounced around various empires and now resides in Venice, a hole was cut in the rock at her gravesite and a circular chapel built in front of it. The chapel's altar is directly below the chiseled gap and in a glass case beneath it is a statue of Lucy that's reputed to miraculously sweat. Her body, a metal-encased corpse in an embroidered scarlet dress with mummified feet, was loaned back to the city by the Venetians for the first time in 2004 and put on display in Syracuse's main cathedral. This cathedral, located in a ritzy neighborhood on Ortigia Island, maintains a room of relics related to St. Lucy. Stepping into it, I studied a torn and loose-weaved fragment of her purported burial cloth and a sapia dress with a sash labeled simply Veste dies Lucia. In a nearby case, ex votos in the shape of eyes were on display, commemorating a story that crawled into her hagiography in the Middle Ages. She is said to have clawed out her own eyes to rebuke her Roman suitor and later received new ones, with stronger spiritual sight from God in return. This story added patron saint of eye diseases to her portfolio, and the ex-votos are still carried by devotees praying for ocular cures and clearer vision. But the focal point of the room is a 16th century silver and gold statue that's paraded between the cathedral and the basilica each December 13th and 20th, as well as during a secondary celebration in May. Its most striking feature is the sword thrust into Lucy's neck, a reminder of how she was ultimately killed. The processions themselves stem from when Sicily was ruled by Spain between the 15th and 18th centuries, when saints' feast days, previously simple liturgical services, were turned into citywide spectacles to solidify the island's Christian identity. These celebrations were the festive side of Spain's sinister efforts to implement their authoritarian brand of Catholicism, which also included violence towards and the expulsion of the island's sizable Jewish and small Muslim populations, and later, the persecution of sex workers, practitioners of magic, accused witches, queers, and Protestants under the auspices of the Inquisition. Despite this, McKay argues that many Sicilians continued to engage in what has been termed occult resistance, feigning respect for the church while quietly clinging to folk rituals, subversive beliefs, and syncretic religious practices. Down the street from the cathedral, I noticed a handwritten sign in a bakery window advertising cuccia, a Sicilian wheat berry and ricotta pudding traditionally eaten on St. Lucy's Day. While I'd made it before, I'd never eaten someone else's version, so I ordered a small container. The ricotta was fresh, and the dark brown wheat berries mixed with candied fruit were just sweet enough. The pudding, tied to the saint's association with providing food in times of need, and closer in spirit to Scandinavian traditions, 
felt like an antidote to the dead and dying Lucy I encountered all over Syracuse. The century and location of Cuchilla's origin story change depending on the teller. Often it's Syracuse, sometimes it's Palermo, but the basic plot points remain the same. During a long, devastating famine in the early modern era, a ship full of grain docked in the harbor. Starving locals rushed to the ship and, too hungry to mill the grain into flour, ate the wheat berries raw. But preparing Cuchilla entails soaking the wheat berries for three days before cooking them, a step that complicates the dish's provenance. In Pomp and Sustenance, 25 Centuries of Sicilian Food, Mary Taylor Semetti suggests that the story of the famine is a Christianization of an ancient food ritual. She follows a hunch that Cuchilla is related to panspermia, a dish of boiled seeds prepared in honor of Apollo, the Greek god of the sun. The Hellenic connection makes sense. Sicily was, after all, such an important part of Magna Graecia that it's where Persephone, a goddess who, alongside her mother Demeter, has resonances with St. Lucy, was abducted into Hades. In her biannual journey, Persephone made her way through subterranean passageways just as Lucy did, while Demeter was said to have searched the underworld frantically for her stolen daughter, using a torch to light her way. As goddess of the harvest, Demeter was particularly sacred to women and the peasantry in Sicily, worship of her driven by a reverence for the earth and a wheat-centered agricultural system. The statue of Lucy carried through the streets of Syracuse grasps a palm frond in her left hand that looks strikingly like the wheat, a symbol of nourishment and life, that Demeter brandishes ancient Greek images. Lucy's symbolic connection to everyday deities of crops and regrowth, alongside the origin myth of Cuchilla, feels representative of the best aspects of her story, not the parts where her death is glamorized or her feast day became a tool of Christo-fascism, but rather Lucy who carried food to her persecuted comrades, and Lucy as syncretic saint goddess whose midwinter descent is a harbinger of the returning warmth and all that it provides. In Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture, Arthur Evans argues that one of the things we've lost to capitalism, the nation-state, and industrialized society is the long-held human ability to create our own gods. To imbue the world around us with beliefs and rights tied to our own values and lifeways. For me, this includes the reclamation of sacred figures that have been appropriated by authoritarian institutions and that are much more complicated and transgressive than they first appear. As I tangle with what it means to have a reverence for St. Lucy, despite my anti-clericalism and agnosticism, I've started to take the bits of her lore that speak to me most, and to try and make something meaningful out of them. To see if, through enacting these traditions, I can come to a greater understanding of my devotion to the saint. This past December 10th, I measured out two pounds of wheat berries for Kuchia and covered them with water. For three days, I changed the water each morning and night. As I did, I swirled my fingers through the soaking liquid and felt the grains between them, an act that was both impulsive and a sort of prayer. The evening before St. Lucy's Day, I cooked the grains and, once cooled, 
Mix them with ricotta, minced pistachios, and chocolate chips. I lined up 10 small mason jars and filled them with the pudding. Meanwhile, I typed 800 messy words about Lucy and laid them out as a one-sheet scene. On the cover, I put a statuary image of her. On the back, a photograph of me, at age 7 or 8, dressed up for St. Lucy's Day. The first five pages were history and folklore, but on the last, I added a prose poem I wrote years before, in which I invoked Lucy as, quote, patron of those who slip through the dark with bags of grain, who are arrested for ladling out soup in city parks, who welcome rebels and outlaws into their kitchens at so much risk, end quote. I printed the zines on Marian blue paper and folded them at my kitchen table. On St. Lucy's Day, I woke up early and loaded bags filled with the cuchilla and zines into my car. As I crossed Tucson on my way to work, I stopped at friends' houses who had requested a delivery. I didn't wear my crown of candles or sing Santa Lucia, but I rather quietly left the pudding and zine on their doorsteps. I was on a schedule, yes, but I also felt awkward about the whole thing. Unlike the weekly community dinners I sometimes help procure food and cook for, this wasn't an act of radical meal sharing. It wasn't something practical or immediately revolutionary. It was, instead, an attempt to reimagine the traditions I grew up with so that they fit with my understanding of myself as an anarchist, an adopted person of Southern Italian descent, and someone who retains, in a defiant form, the chaotic spiritual longing of my childhood. To invite people I've chosen to care for and struggle alongside to participate in those traditions, just as many of them have shared their own sacred rituals with me. The saint herself is portrayed, sometimes literally, as unmovable in her perspective and ideals. Unsure of how the ritual would be received, I was instead an apprehensive Lucy who strove to come and go unseen. While a couple recipients caught me, opening the door to say good morning and, in one case, inviting me in for coffee, I texted the rest of them from my car, adding a candle emoji to the message to let them know their package had arrived. They all responded warmly, and in the months that followed, I noticed the zines perched around their houses. I also dropped off several copies at BCC Tucson, the autonomous social center where I spend much of my time. They were all gone within two or three days. In the chapel next to the catacombs in Syracuse, I flipped through a guest book filled with thanks and prayers in Spanish, English, and Italian, written by visitors from as far away as Venezuela and Australia. Most of the messages were scribbled in indecipherable cursive, but the ones I could make out were standard Catholic fare. Grazie. St. Lucie, pray for us. With the name of the country, city, or parish the supplicant came from recorded next to the message. I couldn't help myself. I needed to reclaim her, in some small way, as a comrade to those who run disaster relief in encampment kitchens, deliver free groceries to the homebound, and hand out coffee and cigarettes to folks as they're released from jail. I picked up a pen and wrote, For mutual aid, for light, for freedom to live as one chooses. And, in an act of earnest cheesiness, I added a circle A. 
Hello and welcome to the show. Um, thank you so much for coming on today um, and for your piece. Um, I feel especially excited about this interview um, because I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time and you've come on the show to be a guest interviewer, but um, I just love your writing so much and have, and it, yes, want to share the weird wing nutty conversations <laughs> that we have about this in our regular lives. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, would you like to introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, and just a little bit about what you do in the world? Sure, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. And my name is Rena Rai, and my pronouns are they, them. What do I do in the world? Um, I, I mean, pertinent to this podcast, I'm a writer who's very interested in history. Um, and so I write, I write a lot about food and I also write about other aspects of culture. And this is maybe the, one of the first things that I published in this vein, but I have a really deep interest in, um, like Southern Italian folk culture. So I've been like reading and studying about that for a long time. And I'm just now starting to publish writing about it. Could you, you know, even though we literally just finished listening to your piece, um, I'm wondering if you could kind of walk us through it or tell us what this piece is about, you know, in the, the, from the mouth of the author. Totally. Yeah. So this piece is about St. Lucy, um, who is a Sicilian saint that is also very important in Scandinavia and is sort of just by happenstance important to me because I grew up, my mother is Swedish American. I'm adopted. I'm not, I'm Italian American and other things. And, um, but I grew up celebrating St. Lucy's Day because of that tie to Scandinavia. And so she became very important to me because of that. And then when I went to revisit her story many, many years later, I found that she had all these amazing tie-ins to like the redistribution of wealth and mutual aid and these, these really cool elements to her story that really spoke to me. Um, so this piece is kind of me exploring that. And when I initially started writing it, I didn't actually want to include myself at all. I've been very into writing history pieces that are just like third person or there might be like a little bit of myself in a sentence or two. But as I was trying to like untangle 2000 years of folklore and history, um, I was like, oh shit, there's absolutely no way for me to structure this story without putting myself into it. Um, like that has to be the structure through which I move through what I'm trying to talk about. And so this piece became more personal than I initially intended it to be because of that. So, Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it's like, you know, that's maybe it's because those are the pieces that you write that I like the most. But um, I feel like that is something that really like allows me to connect with the piece on like a like a much deeper level. But maybe that's because we're friends and <laughs> I love you. Um. <laughs> It does tend to be like a lot of times people really do connect to when I put myself in. So that's fair. But yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. It, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this this later. But it's like the. the <laughs> I don't know if any I don't know if many people spend too much time dissecting like thousands of years of history and like folklore into like like a cohesive narrative. Um, but I feel like without a really strong guiding voice, it becomes hard to tell those stories. And like, 
also that's like I feel like one of the big like pieces of folklore is finding the new ways to tell the stories and like the ways that they apply to our lives you know totally yeah and I like hope that while it's readable it's not too cohesive because as I was going through all of this research like there's just so many fragments that are just so they're like almost opposing or don't connect and so what I was attempting to do and the title is St. Lucy and Anti-Hagiography, which I just learned is pronounced that way. I always say hagiography hey, because I learned how to pronounce things through reading. <laughs> um, but the the reason why it's called an anti-hagiography, a hagiography is like a life of a saint in the more like traditional Catholic sense of the term. And it also tends to mean like a biography of someone that's like really congratulatory and puts mm-hmm. them up on a pedestal. And um, these hagiographies, while they're all different, like the traditional hagiographies about St. Lucy, they have the, they do have these cohesive narratives. And I kind of wanted to um, to like take that apart, you know, and and like really explore her what she means to people as like a series of fragments that are like some of them are really cool and some of them aren't cool, you know. And some of the people that have really loved her are are awesome people that I would consider to be like, you know, fellow travelers and then other people who are like fucking shitty people I want nothing to do with. And so I really want to like write into that tension. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you say like, like hoping that people will uh, not find it too cohesive, Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, which I don't know. It's like the funny, like it's, it's easy to draw some funny and fun images of like, uh, like Lucy wandering around in the catacombs like you know we hope that she finds her way but it's twisty and turny down there totally yeah um or as um uh as as a friend of ours recent recently said while well, like like um researching uh a, a historical concept that is very old um everything connects everything contradicts each oh, other absolutely yeah <laughs> totally totally yeah. um which is actually i guess one of the the first things that i want to ask you about is this concept of um you bring it up in like you're um talking about going down into the catacombs where saint lucie's was buried mm-hmm. um and the tour guide that you're like interacting with um pointing out that uh, you know, the, they focus on archaeology and not religious lore. Um, and maybe the, maybe you know about this, maybe maybe you got opinions about this, but um, I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about the some of the differences between like like archaeology or like like written in stone history and like lore or like folklore, re- religious lore, whatever. Totally. Yeah. So in that particular instance, I actually appreciated that the focus was on archaeology because I believe that those catacombs are run by the diocese of Syracuse. And so the narrative, the religious narrative would have been this very orthodox, using orthodox in this way to mean like traditional, this very like uh, proper Catholic narrative that is not um, a narrative that resonates with me. Um, so I actually appreciated the way that it focused more on like the space and how the space started as this ancient Greek aqueducts, um, system, and then was adopted by, um, early Christians and others to use as catacombs and had like all these different meanings over time. Um, but thinking more broadly about the relationship between like capital H history and folklore, 
I don't really want to speak on archaeology because I don't actually know that much about it. And I actually think, yeah, I don't know. But um not trying to yeah, say archaeology. Totally. Archaeology is really cool. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it's cool. It has some really complicated colonial histories in certain places. I don't know. But um like, yeah, definitely like the history that we have from 2,000 years ago or even 1,000 years ago really tends to be the histories of the ruling class, the histories of the wealthy, the histories of majority religions, majority cultures. And there's actually very little that we can possibly know. There's like so much we can know because like so much amazing research has been done and at the same time, very little that that we can know for sure about people who lived 2,000 years ago who weren't like the Roman emperor or in, in positions of incredible power. Um, yeah, it's like you're, it's really tangling with a bunch of messy facts. Like history is, is a messy business. And so, yeah, I wanted to acknowledge that in my piece. I'm also not an expert. Like I had to dive into or try to learn something about like the history of early Christianity, like not a theologian. I don't identify as Christian or Catholic in any sort of real sense. I like don't study this stuff. My, my interest is in like folk traditions and the folk traditions of women and queer folk um, and working class and rural folks. And so, yeah, like trying to include some of that, I was like, I'm including the best sources I can find, but like they could still totally, like another person's um, source could be like totally contradictory of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like his, history, folklore, all these things are so incredibly complicated. Like, I don't know, like I... I was learning a lot about this and for last month's episode when I was like trying to dissect the 4,000 or more year old mm -hmm. history of, of jack-o'-lanterns and it was like there's there's history there there's things that are literally written down and documented and then there's like a lot more folklore and it's like I don't know it's like the the, <laughs> the weird niche topics and things that I feel like uh I find interesting or that I know you find interesting and it's like maybe that's why we're kind of doing some of this work is like mm -hmm. like yeah I don't know I don't know if that I don't know if there's someone who went out and like put a focused study on like learning about and writing these things and so it's like we're kind of either doing it ourselves or coming up with the best approximations that we can. Totally. Yeah. And I think that that you know I talk about this idea of like creating our own gods and I think that that's a useful thing to do to really try to do history as people who are folklore as people who are passionate about this stuff but maybe aren't experts and also always recognizing that we can never know for sure which actually like makes me think of this Ursula Le Guin quote that I just pulled up but I actually I have it on the wall of my office at my job so I see it all the time um and it's to learn which questions are unanswerable and not to answer them this skill is most needful in times of stress and darkness. And so some, sometimes I feel like what I was doing with this piece was dwelling in the questions mm -hmm. um, more than the answers. And I think that there can be a lot of value in dwelling in those questions, you know. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to maybe bring some of this up later as we talk about some other stuff. But, like, um, it's, and I don't know, maybe this is too personal, but, like, uh, you you said this to me once when I was digging a lot into um, some folklore that we're going to talk about later, and you made a connection that I had never made before, which ties to like some like kind of like personal family history, and like 
or very like accidentally or like unaware of what you're doing like doing like kind of this isn't the word that I want to use because it has some mm-hmm. other uh, connotations, but like ancestral like work into like digging up some stories that like are very intimately connected to like things like family history and stuff mm-hmm. like that and the shit that we're all dealing with in the world today. And I don't know, I that's that's what I <laughs> I found this like interesting parallel between things that I've been really looking into and stories that I've been really digging for and like weirdly how they connect to some of these stories that you've been digging up and you know I don't know makes fun makes sense we're very close friends but yeah um uh welcome to strangers in a tangled wilderness where I actually just um uh it's just you listening to me uh talk about my deep adoration (laughs) for 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 this person in front of me right now well, um, I'm really bad at comedy. If if I have awkward or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there there is this other kind of piece that I wanted to talk about, which is like I, I know you don't you're not like a theologian or anything like that, but it was this little piece that you put in um about like building kind of like a context for like what Christianity like was at the time of Saint Lucy. Um which, you know, it's it's interesting to think about this because of like what Christianity is currently um and what it would become not too long after lucy died mm-hmm. um but the idea of christianity as a fringe religion is like really interesting <laughs> um and that's history baby <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> things that were fringe become like hegemonic controlling forces <laughs> yeah totally totally um and it's like the I you know I feel like I want to ask a theologian more about this, but it's like the it's like what Christianity what Christianity's like appeal was to people is like interesting is like and I'm quoting something you said, which is maybe another quotation, um, but like there was a resurrection of the dead and an overturning of the established power, and I don't know I'm wondering I'm specifically wondering about that kind of phrase like the overturning of the established power as like I don't know do you have any historical leanings into like what the threat of Christianity was to like Roman paganism I don't yeah totally yeah I mean I think that this was a time when the Roman Empire was falling apart and I don't I'm not going to go on here and say that there was any ever a time when a terrible conquering empire was good, but this is a time when people were really like hungry um, and didn't have resources. And so I think there actually were like lots of different, I don't think it was just Christianity, right? There were lots of different sort of like religious presentations. A friend mentioned that there was a thread of, so this like overturning of the established power type thing would be referred to as like millenarianism. millenarianism which I also don't know that much about because just like outside of my realm of, of knowledge, but a friend mentioned that at the same time within Judaism, there were these millenarian, millenarian threads happening within certain um, communities. And there were also these like cults of, of gods that were like pagan Roman Greek gods that were coming up that were like against the established power. So my understanding is that like at the time there were just like lots of things kind of like chipping away at this empire. And that this small new religion of Christianity was part of it. Um, and that said, like, I could not figure out, like, what strain of Christianity came to Syracuse. 
I think it was Pauline Christianity, which is like the the not great kind. Uh, St. Paul sucked. Um, but then there were these other branches that were more liberatory, right? So it's all this kind of mess of like all of these groups of people sort of chipping away at the Roman Empire. Um, and I actually can't remember if I included this in the piece, but um, in Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture by Arthur Evans, there um, he argues that one of the reasons why Rome adopted the Pauline kind of Christianity as a state religion is because it already fit with this kind of like macho militarism that Rome was into. Um, whereas other faiths at the time, maybe some of them did, but a lot of them didn't and other, other strains of, of early Christianity didn't. So it was like a natural fit in terms of a religion that could become this like huge state power and do really bad things. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's like, I don't know, it's like we see we see similar kind of like pushbacks um, or like similar like relationship between like um, in like like the Roman and Greek like pantheons. There were these like the the deities that are like celebrated are these like hyper masculine mm-hmm. and hyper like patriarchal and hyper like uh, society bound like um, or, you know, established power bound like like uh, relationships. And then you have these other kind of like funny fringe like cults and stuff mm-hmm. as they were called. Yeah. Where it's like like the like the cult of Dionysus like within the Roman and like Greek pantheon or like the cult of Pan as these like people would go out and have like weird orgiastic like celebrations in the mountains and like you know there's there's literal plays about like the threat that they pose to like society or like whatever as like being these like deviations from from the norm so it's 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 in it makes sense that that Paul and Paul, Paul I don't remember that word Paul, Pauline Pauline it was like the Saint Paul version totally yeah like Christianity kind of like melds up with stuff that Rome art was already espousing but totally yeah and that was interesting when I was looking also into so so Saint Lucy has some tie-ins to Demeter and Persephone who are both very sacred on or considered very important in Sicily um and people sort of argue whether they predated Greek colonization of Sicily or like they came from Greece and just became important or like syncretized to the religion already there. But um, Sicily is sometimes referred to as Persephone's Island. It's believed to be a place, the place where um, Persephone like went into the underworld, right? And there are some, you know, there, there are these sort of parallels between St. Lucy going into the catacombs and being the symbol of like, you know, winter, spring, solstice celebration and Demeter and Persephone. And it was interesting because I, one thing I like really want to guard against is this idea that like, oh, just because it was pre-Christian or just because it was pagan, it was good. Like Mm -hmm. these, these pre-Christian religions have also been used in really terrible ways. But it was interesting learning about how um, Demeter functioned as a symbol of resistance and also was co-opted by the powers that be to uh, like squelch resistance because they knew that people were really like regular everyday people really worshiped her. And so would build temples to Demeter to sort of like appease them. Um, And 
there were things I couldn't put in the piece because I couldn't find backup documentation um, that I like remember from actually having the opportunity to travel to Sicily last December. And one of them is that, apologize, I apologize for my pronunciation. I'm like in the process of learning Italian and I'm very bad at languages. But um, at Agrigento, there are these temples, these ancient Greek temples. It's one of the biggest archeological sites in Sicily. It's like incredibly beautiful and amazing. And um, the temple to the Thonic gods, the gods of the underworld, which in Sicily really meant Demeter and Persephone, is on the edge of the temple complex. And I remember reading this sign there that talked about how it was on the edge because that was the domain of women. You know, it was like these, this like older, more ancient, more, you know, woman-centered, um, what it, however woman was conceived at the time, not to be like essentialist, but you know what I mean? We're talking about ancient history here. Um, well, I mean, we're talking about an ancient history that also like, like there are a lot of historical basis for having been like very, like, you know, obviously in like yeah, pockets, but totally. like, like trans people existed oh, in totally. fuck, in fucking yeah. reverence in these areas. Yeah. Like <laughs> it was like the place where people who weren't like powerful cis dudes worshipped. Yeah. And um it, yeah, it's just like very striking to me that that, you know, it was on the edge. It wasn't these like huge temples to these warlike gods that are also there. And um yeah, so that was interesting to dig into too, like these complexities between the different gods and what we would think of as the traditional Greek um and Roman pantheon. Um I you know, I always want to talk about like uh like historical queerness and stuff like that, but I want to back up just a little bit cuz um I think it mostly kind of speaks for itself of like what's happening like in your piece, but I just want to like kind of define a couple terms and like one of those terms cuz you know, I I know what this is, but like what it what is um syncretism? Yeah, so syncretism is this idea within any religion, but you see it used mostly in relationship with like um, religions that have become powerful or hegemonic or sort of like calcified in some way with a set of rules. That syncretism is this this idea that people, um, the combination of like folk traditions or in this case, pre-Christian traditions with a Catholic religion. Um, Sicily is interesting, especially the, the short, the not the middle, the part that's near the ocean, because it actually was Christianized very early because it was this sort of like um, multicultural, important trading center in the Mediterranean. But in a lot of more of the rural parts, the mountains of uh, southern Italy, Christianity was imposed by decree. It was basically like, you're a Christian now, the Roman, the Roman state is Christian, and therefore you're a Christian. And people were like, okay, cool, whatever. And they just kind of like, kept doing what they were doing or like they were like the madonna is totally like these ancient divine mothers you know um and so and this happened has happened all over the world i i'm just like talking about italy because that's what i know more about um so it's this idea this combination of either these older forms of worship or like just these like more folkloric forms of worship that maybe developed more contemporaneously um combined with the like traditional religions like Catholicism it's I think you kind of turned my thinking around on this but I find this when I was initially learning about like um syncretism 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 mm -hmm. whatever words are um uh, I viewed it as this like incredibly like you, you know like 
colonialistic like thing that was like really bad and like and like always bad you know Mm -hmm. it was like um which you know obviously there's like some examples of those things with like uh fuck i just talked about this person pope gregory the third uh creating like you know um the like all hollows like celebrations Mm -hmm. like specifically and like unequivocally to get people to stop celebrating Samhain yeah um but then um and you you mentioned in this in 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 the piece is that uh syncretism is also like the smuggling of ideas Mm -hmm. like into religions and I don't know do you can you talk a little bit more about kind of like the yeah folkloric folk smuggling i'm gonna call it folk smuggling um yeah i definitely think it's both right like it's been used as this tool of oppression to take traditional religions away from people and also those people have often responded by saying we're gonna find ways to continue to practice our own ideals um and those ideals like in and of themselves aren't always cool i also want to say that right like some some folk practices are like shitty and patriarchal and awful um but yeah but there is, yeah, there's this way of, I find a lot of power in in that idea of smuggling, even though I also know that syncretism is used as a tool of co-optation and oppression. It's not one or the other, because personally to me, that sort of speaks to my, if I have any sense of faith or anything, you know, it kind of speaks to my sense of faith. Um, I grew up like, very Catholic and attending in a pretty Italian Catholic church in outside of New York city. And I hated going to church. I hated sitting there and listening to these super patriarchal sermons. I didn't, the religion didn't make sense to me. It felt repressive. Um, But one way that I got through that was by noticing all of these other stories, right? So noticing, um, you know, in Italian American Catholicism, the Madonna Mary often has pride of place outside the church door. So you see more of a focus on Mary than you do on like Jesus. And um, that's partly because of traditions around the divine mother that go back a really long time in Southern Italian Catholicism and folk Catholicism. Yeah. But part of the way that I like sort of, yeah, I got through that experience of being in this more repressive environment was by like making up stories about, saints and and like thinking about saints and being like these are just like the gods and goddesses i'm reading about in like these books of mythology and you know like noticing all of the sort of like magic and that that was surrounding or that was like creeping into these things that i really didn't like and what was interesting thinking about like ancestral stuff right or about like tying into family histories or tying into cultural histories is that so much of what I was noticing and sort of like making up in my own head as a kid just to get through like sitting through math. I later learned about in books and was like, whoa, I was picking up on all this stuff. And it like, there's like documentation. Like I was picking up on something that was real, totally. you know? Totally. So. Yeah, like hear- hearing about you like making up stories that just turned out to be you really like keying into <laughs> to things that were, you know, very very real not that stories you make up in your head as a kid during mass aren't real for their own reasons um but a while ago i got really interested in the um in kind of like some 
variations of stories that I'd been hearing. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about some of them on here before, but there's like, you know, there's like alternative retellings of like the story of the the Gorgons and Medusa. Mm -hmm. And I was searching for some like alternative stories about Persephone because like all the stories are really creepy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like they're really creepy. And um, they're stories that like don't give Persephone like a whole lot of agency and like what's happening to her. Um, And for, you know, folks who don't know, Persephone was abducted by Hades and like um, brought down into the underworld. And then like Demeter, um, her mom, like, you know, threw a fit about it. And Zeus just kind of didn't do anything because, you know, weird boys club didn't really care yeah um and like the thing to note here is that persephone is like a literal child and you don't get anything in the stories between persephone being abducted and like persephone becoming an adult um but what you do get is that she like eventually became the queen of the underworld and Mm -hmm. and that was it and like it ties into the changing of the seasons because like um you know eventually eventually Zeus was like, okay, well, Persephone, you could spend half the... Oh, sorry. Demeter... This this is what happened. Uh, Demeter threw such a fit that she just canceled spring, and humanity was on the brink of starvation um, because they were plunged into an eternal winter. And it was only after that that Zeus was like, okay, okay, Hades, maybe, maybe you have to let this child come back to the surface so that Demeter doesn't kill all of humanity and Hades had tricked her into like eating pomegranate seeds and so she she, which meant that she could not fully return and so Zeus was like okay you have to spend half the year in the underworld and half the year above the ground and this is like how the seasons like Mm -hmm. a a tale of the seasons you know yeah totally and it being like when Persephone like goes down into the under into the underworld Demeter throws a fit and gets really sad and it gets cold. Mm -hmm. And then when Persephone comes back to the surface, Demeter is like, yay, my daughter, Mm -hmm. like we can hang out and like spring happens. Totally. And so, you know, long winded context, but I was really interested in like, like, I'm like, what kind of happens between Persephone being a child and being an adult? And like, Mm -hmm. I started to concoct all of these like, like stories about like her, like, like escaping and like wandering through the underworld and like meeting the like souls of people that Hades had like the idea that Hades is just like not doing what he should be doing which is like being the steward of the dead and like Persephone kind of like starting to fill that role and like wandering around in the dark looking Mm -hmm. for like the lost dead to like bring comfort to as she like tries to escape this underworld and so then it's like reading your piece and like seeing the corollaries between like that and like St. Lucy's story. I was like, and like all of the connections with like uh, Sicily being Persephone's Isle and some other things that I'll get into later. But I was just like, wow, everything's connected and weird. This totally. is this is weird and fun. Yeah. And what's interesting, and I this is just like a tiny footnote in the piece because I was like pushing up against the word count. But um, what's interesting is that St. Lucy was likely a real person, an early Christian who like got killed. We don't know that much about her, got killed in these awful ways, like so many 
young Christian women at the time. Um, and, but over the years, she's taken on these attributes of Demeter and Persephone. So um, one thing that was really emphasized in one piece I read was not like, she's not like this straight line continuation of Demeter and Persephone that like comes down to us through the ages in this unbroken way, but rather over time, she's taken on these attributes, um, which really I, I like because it challenges. I think, I think it's, it can be very romantic to be like, you know, these traditions, Halloween, like thinking about Samhain and these other early festivals, you know, it's this like, these vestiges that come from like the ancient world have survived, but like some of them are like reinventions or mm-hmm. things that got grafted on later. Um, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like that is fine. Like humans create beliefs and traditions and rituals as a way to be in the world, you know? And so, yeah, it doesn't have to be this like continuation straight line from ancient times. Um, and, and very often it actually isn't. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, names get really funny like that. I'm wondering, um, I know etymology isn't quite your thing, but um, is there a relation, is there a relationship in names between like St. Lucy and the, the Lucy in, uh, in like Swedish, like folklore? Yeah. Okay. So I know, <laughs> I know less about the Swedish stuff. I did research. I'm just not as interested. There is like so much cool Scandinavian folklore around St. Lucy. I, um, there's writing about it. I hope like if, if St. Lucy speaks to you with, in relationship to those traditions, like I would love if folks did more research on that. Um, but I don't know as much in part because I'm just not personally as interested in, in that. Like, I just don't know as much about Scandinavian culture in general. That hasn't been like something I've studied or read about very much. But like what I could tell is that like, yeah, there's some relationship, right? Like Lucy sounds like Lucy, like sometimes things that names sound alike, they get combined or, you know? And so, yeah, I don't think it like comes from that, but it kind of got combined in a way. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, it, I appreciate this distinction that like things don't come in like this, like unbroken chain or like lineage or something. And people are doing a lot of reinventing and there is an awful lot of really funny similarities in like, in stories that people are telling in different parts of the world. Oh, and, totally. For humans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just love it. It's fun. I don't know. It brings to mind this like funny like um, like uh this is my weird favorite uh saint is um Saint Brendan, just this Irish saint is the Irish saint of lies. He's not actually the saint of lies. The tall tales. The tall tales. Yeah. St. Brendan has these funny tall tales about finding like these like mystical lands and stuff. And you know, St. Brendan was also a real person who lived in like 400 BC or something. Or sorry, 400 CE. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but all the stories about St. Brendan are like, like you can just go back a thousand years and find identical stories about seafaring, yeah. like Irish lads. And they're the exact same stories, but they've been like, re- totally. like, yeah, like grafted onto St. Brendan. Writing- um, oh, this is this is kind of a break in what we've been talking about, but um, 
I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you, you mentioned this in the piece, but I was like, oh, I don't know about that. I want to learn more about that. Like, what are the Christ Christo-fascist associations with St. Lucie? I think I was thinking more about Christo-fascism in general, right? This like oh. Christian hegemony. So it wasn't specifically St. Lucie. One thing that I did notice, though, when I was in Syracuse was that, like, some of the rhetoric around St. Lucie within, like, her, the church that is next to the catacombs mm -hmm. felt very, like, um, Christianity is, like, the one true right religion, mm -hmm. which is actually pretty different from how I was raised, being raised Catholic in the New York area with um, some pretty strong Jewish influences and just, like, an orientation towards, like, deep respect for all religions. Um, and so that always kind of is jarring to me. It's very mm -hmm. different from what I know. And um, I found that very disturbing. Mm -hmm. But I think I was thinking more in general. And I guess a good example of this is Joan of Arc. Because mm -hmm. Joan of Arc has been adopted as a symbol by so many different people. And I was recently reading an article about how she's like become a symbol of the far right in France as what? a symbol of the French nation state. Um but she was also this like peasant girl who practiced folk magic and maybe saw herself as a goddess and then like was killed by the Catholic Church and then like wasn't canonized for like, which is the process of becoming made a saint. Like it, she wasn't canonized for like hundreds of years because they had never canonized a saint who had been killed by the Catholic Church before and they didn't know how to deal with it. She also like has associations with sort of like gender nonconformity. She believes she was called to wear men's clothes. You know, there's all this stuff about Joan of Arc that's like so fucking cool. And in some ways she's become sort of a queer icon. And yeah. I love that presentation of Joan of Arc. But she's also been the symbol of of like really terrible things that like I nor hopefully anyone listening to this would ever want to be associated with, right? And so these symbols can mean so many different things. Yeah, that is that is terrifying to learn about. I didn't know that about the far right in France. Um, if any listeners are familiar with this and want to, I don't know, tell me about it sometime. That's as much as I know. Um, but yeah, just like the way that things, you know, even even the coolest parts of something can be co-opted. This is so. This is normally one of the first questions that I ask people. Um, but like, why is this? Why is this story important? And like, what, what, what do you hope people kind of get out of? Yeah, it's interesting when you ask me to write this because I do have an attachment to St. Lucie from childhood, but um, compared to other elements of Italian folk Catholicism and folk Catholicism in general, um, she's more institutional, right? She's mm -hmm. like this saint that has this, this place within the capital C, capital C Catholic Church. And there are folk traditions around her. But they're not as rich as some of these other folk traditions um, that also exist, you know, folk traditions around whether it be warding off the evil eye or sort of these worships of different um, avatars of the Madonna who are, you know, have these like a very what we would think of as very pagany attributes or um, the cult of the dead. And when I say cult, I don't mean like modern cult documentaries. I mean like religious practices. Yeah. You know, there's this whole tradition of um, Southern Italian women adopting the skulls of the forgotten dead and caring for them, which um, is like not officially sanctioned in any way. You know, there's a lot of stuff that is so much more um, 
transparently cool or like connects to what I think is cool. And St. Lucie is like, it's more, it's a, like she's a more institutional figure. So in some ways this was challenging to like really have to like dive into that, you know, and, and think about what that means. Yeah. And what I came away was first of all, St. Lucie's day, which is on December 13th. It's a very beautiful festival of light. Um, it to me is a celebration of sharing, um, of sharing food, of sharing what you have. Um, and that day is really important to me. And yeah, like there's just so much, but I hope that I hope people take away from it. I just, you know, as a person who was adopted and adoption has a great PR campaign and is actually very, very messed up, complicated thing. Um, I feel part of what makes me feel human in this world is feeling connected to these traditions. And there's so many other reasons why that's important to other people as well. And I just want to, I wanted to create a small pathway for people to, to learn about a new tradition. And if this tradition speaks to you, no matter like who you are, like what background you come from, like to be able to engage in it in the way that you want. Um, and, and to open up space for people to share all sorts of different traditions, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, is some of like what you were like hinting that, and I'm just making me remember, I wanted to ask you more about this was, um, you talk about like a cult resistance. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know too much more about that. So that I got from this book, The Invention of Sicily, which I'd strongly encourage anyone to read who's interested in Sicily, which is a fascinating place. Um, and and a, a, with a, I don't know, not the best word, but like what we might call a deeply multicultural history, multi-faith history, you know. But I don't know more about what that occult resistance looked like than that passage okay. in that book. But I just thought it was so cool. You know, yeah. Um, I think about like people like casting spells or something, you know, of protection. And yeah, I don't know. Anyone want to like research or write more about occult resistance? I please do. <laughs> <laughs> and then talk to us about it. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I know this isn't necessarily connected to that, but it's like, I don't know, maybe to to gather some threads. Um is you know we have this we we have this figure who was like a, a real historical person probably probably <laughs> um <laughs> and um you know she espouses some like really interesting ideas it was like we talk about like the like the redistribution of wealth and like like using a form to like like using a religious practice to like like break down a uh, like a societal expectation that like wealth mm -hmm. not be redistributed mm -hmm. yeah like that is super interesting and it's like totally. you know it's like whatever Christianity has become which you know like I'm also not a Christian I'm I grew up Catholic I'm not a Catholic like it's like whatever it's like whatever it is now it's really cool that someone used that to like you know convince their mom to like like redistribute wealth totally and there are, yeah, there are these traditions within Catholicism that, that where that's still really important. Things like the Catholic workers movement, 
um, and liberation theology that I think are really powerful examples of how Catholicism can be, uh, it, to some extent, like something that can be liberatory. So I don't think that that's disappeared completely. Um, but it is, yeah, it is, it is different, right, than, you know, the hoarding of wealth that happens at the Vatican and within churches. And actually, um, that hoarding of wealth led to a, like, really strong strain of anti-clericalism among mm. Southern Italians that, you know, when they um, came as immigrants slash settler colonists to the United States, uh, got carried with them. And so there's this long tradition um, that really comes to life or that like really becomes apparent in the 18 and 1900s where these Italian immigrants are arriving in the United States and they like see themselves as super Catholic, but they won't go to church um, because they're like, we believe in these traditions that have been passed down to us, both probably cool and, and fucked up, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, fuck the priests, the priests hoard all the money. I'm like wildly oversimplifying here, but yeah, you do see right that like, yeah this this anti-clericalism among people who identify as deeply religious but don't want anything to do with the actual church so yeah and like you make those distinctions a lot in the piece of like like uh folk catholicism versus like clericalism yeah um which yeah i don't know it's like historically <laughs> like holds up and like i don't know yeah like especially connotations with like um with like Catholic workers and like maybe this is in like the context that I that I feel like we're really familiar with of like Catholic workers like um being embedded in like a lot of like uh historical like radical left yeah, struggles totally. yeah <laughs> like, and a lot of them were anarchists or are they're still Catholic workers but yeah. you know there's history of Catholic workers but then yeah yeah and it's like when I think of Catholic workers I think of people who are doing like wacky uh, this wacky is not the right word um really cool like border work and like um and people who are like just trying to feed people and it's mm. like i don't know and so it's like it's interesting to me like how those kind of like tie into like saint lucy's story is like at its oh, core really? saint lucy is like the story of a rich girl who wanted to be a class trader and like redistribute her wealth and totally. like wander yeah. around in the dark to like feed people yeah like even though she would probably get killed for it she did get yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> wait actually this is maybe a moment of uh clarification i thought that she was not caught for for the for feeding people yeah. and was later killed because she wouldn't marry yeah, I think it happened all at the same time. But yeah, so technically, according to her hagiography, she was she was uh, executed in really horrible ways that I won't go into because she wouldn't marry this like wealthy Roman dude. Um, but like, maybe that's not true, right? Like, this is this idea of like inventing our own stories. Like, maybe part of it was that like they knew that she was hating these people hiding out in the catacombs. And yeah. 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 Who like, knows? It's a story. Yeah. It's all a story. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Totally. I do like the version of the story. It's weird that I like this version of the story. Um I don't like that she did this, but I'm like, fuck, you're hard. Yeah. Like, because one of the versions of the story that I've heard is like, um, she in an, in order to get out of a marriage to this like wealthy Roman suitor, um, who just would not give up, she blinded herself. Mm-hmm. And 
that was her trying to that's like the lengths that she was willing to go to to like get out of or had was driven to to like get out of this like compulsory like marriage totally she plucked out her own eyes and that's a very medieval version of her story and i don't know enough about how like the stories of the saints changed in the middle ages but i feel like they got like pretty goth totally (laughs) and goth in our sense of the word not in the historical sense of the word (laughs) um but yeah it's like led to this association as a patron saint of people with eye diseases and Mm -hmm. stuff and so a lot there's these little x photos which are um like metal uh symbols that are used in worship or left at shrines um in spanish they're called milagros and um saint lucy's x photos are in the shape of eyes because of that association yeah yeah and sometimes she's depicted carrying a platter with her eyes yeah on them pretty goth pretty god <laughs> um yeah and i meant to mention this earlier but it's just you know we we see this like syncretism i'm gonna say this word correctly eventually um like in all and specifically with catholicism and like a lot of places that catholicism has been and like we see like really it's like there's kind of like similar like uh like reverence almost i feel like more for like saintly figures than like you know god or jesus mm-hmm. um and like we see that in like latin america with like um oh totally uh the like the virgin of guadalupe yeah and yeah. i don't know yeah folk catholicism pretty cool <laughs> i am yeah and not always cool right like totally. these these figures can be used there's a movie that i really like trigger warning for literally everything it is a deeply disturbing and messed up and, and misogynistic like it, it's it's like showing misogyny i don't you know people argue whether the film itself is misogynistic but i find it very powerful it's called il demonio it's considered to be the only neo-realist horror film and the story is about a young woman in a town in in the mountains of southern italy who for various reasons is believed to be possessed and it shows how both like the catholic priest's response and the village's like more folk Catholic pagany response, both are in the service of patriarchy and misogyny. And I think that's such an interesting story because it, yeah, it's just important to remember. Um, that said, it's also often been a tool of, of resistance um, and often been a tool, especially of women within a society where they were pretty disempowered, being able to express their own belief system, this very, you know, these, these female saints and the Madonna, this, you know, as a source of power. Um, yeah. So once again, it's, it's a both and. Yeah. Yeah. History is really complicated. I know. (laughs) Should have gotten into an easier business. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is maybe the allure of like folklore is like, not that it's easier, but that it's like a little more forgiving than like, uh, some like very academicized like uh uh like versions of of like studying history which you know don't get me wrong studying history and like like learning specifically things that happen and are documented and aren't documented is really important totally yeah yeah where things haven't been documented we there's no yeah totally um that's kind of bringing us 
to the end. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about or questions that I didn't ask you that you wish I'd asked you. Um, maybe I want to like read this passage. Okay, so there's this oh, book yeah. called Living the Revolution, Italian Women's Resistance and Radicalism in New York City, 1880 to 1945 by Jennifer Guglielmo. And it doesn't, I don't quote it in my um, essay at all, in part because I like rely on this book so much. I felt like I needed to step away from it. But um, reading her section on anti-clericalism and women's folk Catholicism and like, I'm sure, you know, queer folks and trans people are also involved, but aren't really in recorded history, um, was really impactful for my own understanding of like how I had conceptualized religion as a kid. You know, this was my aha moment. And um, she writes about a lot of the things we've been talking about, but there's this one passage I think is really fun and I like to read it. And she says, the devotion of this to the saints occurred largely outside of clerical control in whatever spaces were available, basements, kitchens, storefronts, and even saloons. And that makeshift sites of worship did mean, however, that devotees inscribed everyday spaces and activities with transgressive meaning. One particularly revealing example comes from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. In the summer of 1906, several police officers representing the city's tenement house squad arrived at 359 Metropolitan Avenue with orders to evict the tenants for, quote-unquote, unsanitary conditions. As the police tried to enter the building, they faced an angry Italian woman who blocked their entry, shouting, Death to the first man who desecrates our shrine! A group of Italian women had built a shrine for the Virgin Mary on the top floor. The first group of officers promptly left. The New York Times reported because, quote unquote, one of them was Italian. The second group of officers arrived to find the women praying for their destruction. So back to the street they went. And it was not until the police convinced the women that, quote unquote, the law provided for their eviction to some cleaner place. that The women carried their shrine out, and vacated the building. As in southern Italy, women created their own relationship to the, the divine without male intercessors. They also relied on their own sense of spiritual authority to confront adversaries. So I just think this is like a fun passage <laughs> that kind of speaks to some of the ideas that that we're kind of parsing through here. Hell yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I want to read that book now. You should read it. Well, uh, oh, before we get to the word of the month, um, do you have anything you're working on or anything you want to plug? Um, I know you have edited some books just one <laughs> yeah i edited on an anthology called nourishing resistance stories of food protest and mutual aid and you can get it from pm press i think for the month of december it's 50 percent off they do a big sale at the end of the year and there's amazing contributor contributors in that book um so yeah that's what i'll plug for now cool, cool. great um and can people is there anywhere on the internet that you can be found that you would like to be found yeah people can find me at at uh, just my name on Instagram. Well, that brings us to the word of the month. Um, <laughs> and I will be very surprised if you are, at, uh, you know, d d aren't at least a little familiar with, with the words. Um, but uh, since, you know, etymology is a little becoming one of my things, um, I was shocked to not see some of these things in, in, in the piece. But you're, I mean, sorry, I'm not speaking your piece right now. Your piece is beautiful. It is mm -hmm. perfect. There's a lot that it's not perfect, and there's a lot that didn't make it in. So yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, and this this is kind of tied into this idea that like um people um stories the 
even even if we have stories that are like based on historical figures the way that those figures change over history is interesting mm-hmm. um so what do you what do you where do you think the origin of the name lucy is that's do with light right yeah yeah um lucia lucy which um like you know that is that is, that is that would not have been this person's name mm, of course yeah yeah then then lucy would have come from uh Lu- lucia um or lucia i don't know how to pronounce italian it would be lucia in yeah. italian yeah fun um, fact I, this didn't make it in, can i can i interject so this didn't make it into the piece um i decided to refer to her as saint lucy because it just seemed to make sense i was writing in english um but i grew up interestingly calling her santa lucia never in my house was she ever saint lucy or uh Sancta Lucia, which I believe would be the Swedish way of saying it. She was always Santa Lucia. Um, so that's just like, it just didn't, you know, it fell on the cutting room floor as I was writing. But yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, Lucia comes directly from the Roman word lucis, um, which is the generative form of lux or light. And this is when stuff starts to get more interesting. Is And, you, you know, the idea here that like, whoever this person was, they probably weren't born Lucy. Mm. Like, this is probably a name that was applied to them later. Whoa. Um, and, you know, that's, that's just me yeah. having a guess because I'm like, that's a wild coincidence, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, like, similarly, um, the, the next etymology is this other figure that we talked about today, which is Persephone, um, who also has a name that has a lot of varying etymologies um and in some in some instances it's like an applied title more than someone's name so like um persephone is a name that was considered obscure and there's quite a few etymologies a popular folk etymology and i'm saying like folk etymology is to differentiate between like uh stories that people would tell and versus like things that are there's like known documentation for but like with language especially language that is like over 2000 years old it's like really messy i think it's really messy to find these like direct lineages um but a popular folk etymology of persephone is um from the greek words um pharaon meaning to bring or cause death mm-hmm. um and so, like, one folk etymology of Persephone is maiden of death, which mm. is more of a title, you know. This person wasn't named that. Totally. Um, and in even in the mythology, um, Persephone is uh, named um, Cora, um, which it comes from the Greek word to grow. Mm. Um, so, like, literally, like, maiden. And so it's, like, whatever, like, this person doesn't really have a name. Their, yeah. Like, their name in the story is girl and then maiden of death yeah <laughs> after she becomes queen of the underworld um but then there's some other etymologies for the name uh which includes uh coming from uh sanskrit and indo-european um and this this is a popular um thesis right now which mm-hmm. is that the name comes from persifada uh which comes from uh parsa which is a sheaf of grain for some reason it specifically listed as corn um which is confusing because corn didn't come into the mediterranean until the 1500s cool great yeah. beautiful this why is it corn really common <laughs> <history question. laughs> 
Okay. And so if you're looking at, um, if you're writing, if you're studying food history, you would always say maize okay. because you would never say corn because that's confusing. So maize refers to what we think of as corn, which developed in Mesoamerica. I see. Um, I see. You know, didn't come into Europe until the like violent colonization of the Americas. Um, so corn just means like a kind of grain. I see. Okay. Yeah. This this was really confusing to me when I was yeah. looking it up. I was like, where did they get corn from? <laughs> I was just thinking about this because I'm taking this medieval food history class right now. And um yeah, I was I was literally just thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Um, okay, but then the so the second part of is uh, fata or to strike, beat, or kill. So persifata literally meaning a thresher of grain, which is so, so connected to Demeter, right? Um, Demeter and person like uh, images of Persephone is like being like this person holding a sheaf of holding. grain. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also I was thinking of like the connection to weirdly this connection to Lucy. Mm. Um, which in like her connection to grain and like the eating of like cuchilla and yeah. like, I don't know. It's like, everything's weirdly connected. <laughs> yeah. Oh, everything's connected. Yeah, for sure. And then even still, as things get funnier and weirder, um, there's another etymology for Persephone, um, which is from this, uh, Persephone had this Albanian counterpart, this um, dawn goddess named um, Primete, um, who is, you know they're they're like thought of as these like corollaries mm. for like for each other and if you trace the etymology of Promete um it also from this like Indo-European from Indo-European you get the the word and there's some symbols that I couldn't figure out how to pronounce in here so it's going to be a little messy but it's um per pers a beneath or she who brings light through whoa yeah and you know it's 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 obviously lining all these things up it's like easy to draw comparisons Connection. and connections between them but that's what's so weird about folklore and history yeah. and etymology is that everything is connected and i feel like you can't really dismiss extreme coincidence totally so yeah, yeah, yeah. and and that connection between darkness and light is both necessary that connection between winter and summer is both necessary right that one is not bad or good, but that they are intertwined. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, I hope whoever Lucy was, that she is was as hard as we remember her. Totally. And even if she wasn't, <laughs> we get to decide that, you know? Yeah. Totally. Um, do you have any do you have any plans for this St. Lucy's day? You know, I was just thinking about that. I So I'm in my second to last semester of my library science degree, and um, I'm in really, like, finals are pretty intense this semester, and so I've been trying to figure it out. Um, and so I'm going to try to make cuchilla, but I've also been thinking about how it's okay to celebrate holidays differently each year, and um, it's important for me to do something for St. Lucy's Day every year, but maybe this year the main thing I do is put this scene into the world. So, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for putting it into the world and for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for. I, I can't believe we didn't get to mention this, but the reason why it even happened is because Inman convinced me to write it. So you're a huge part of why it's in the world. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what's funny is Ren says this, and I have literally no memory of like talking about it before before Ren was talking about making this piece. So no, you totally <laughs> you totally provoked it. 
<laughs> uh, okay, well, on that note, I'm, we're uh, goodbye, and, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Write more stuff. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, wander the catacombs in search of people to bring food to, which is really more important than ever right now. Also, you can tell people about tell people about the show. You can rate and review and like and subscribe or whatever the algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. However, if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity, consider supporting the show financially by subscribing to our Patreon. If you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, we will mail to you a zine version of the pieces that you hear here every month, anywhere in the world. You can also get access to an archive of Old Strangers content, as well as discounts on things like t-shirts and books we publish. Find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. You can also find other podcasts we put out, like The Spectacle, which was formerly the Anarcho Geek Power Hour, the podcast for people who love movies and hate cops. On the next episode, you can listen to me and Ren talk to Io about strangely similar topics to today's interview, because we're nerds and we know like 10 things. Um, except we're going to talk about the movie, the uh, holiday special, the Christmas special classic the green knight um and you can find that wherever you get podcasts um we at strangers would like to really thank these wonderful people um thank you patoli eric percival buck julia catgut marm carson lord harkin trickster princess miranda ben ben anonymous funder janice and odell ally paparuna milica Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, SJ, Paige, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Kirk, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the Dog. Thanks so much. It y- y- Y'all just fucking rock. Y'all rock. You're incredible. Thank you. That is what I have to say. And lastly, <laughs> a lot of the features on the podcast come from listeners like you. So if you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story at home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it and tell us a tale as hard as Lucy's. Next month, we have a piece of short fiction called Death of a Murder by Vicky Osterweil. Stay well. We hope you come back.